Well, you know, it could be good luck or it could be good management. But just as Trent Dalton was talking first up this morning about homelessness and empathy, so too is my next guest, Jennifer Egan. She's a Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist, a visit from the Goon Squad, Candy House. She's also a journalist, and for two decades, she's been investigating social issues in the United States, most recently homelessness in a New Yorker feature about a supportive housing facility in the city called 90 Sands. And I asked her to tell me more. So 90 Sands is a a very large apartment building, which has mostly studio apartments and some one bedrooms, uh, over 400 in total. 60% of them are occupied by people who either have a serious mental health diagnosis or a substance use disorder diagnosis, i.e. addiction, or both, and who have spent a certain amount of time homeless. And in fact, the uh, average is eight years for people in the building. So people in that category who who check one or more of those boxes... um, occupy 60% of the apartments. The other 40%, which are not yet full, will be and are occupied by lower income New Yorkers who are uh, who have their own form of subsidized housing, which is known as affordable housing. And it's in a very kind of fancy neighborhood. So that's an unusual aspect of the building um, called Dumbo. For those of those who know Brooklyn may know Dumbo by the water. And the other thing that's sort of interesting about it is that because it was just opened in last September, the entire, all of those 60%, 305 apartments occupied by chronically homeless individuals with disabilities were filled within a rather relatively short amount of time. And I was able to basically witness all of that because I started working on the story in July of 2022. So that's that gives you a, a basic sense of the building. So the implication, in order to qualify for a place at ninety cents in in the sixty percent fully subsidized one, is that you need a a, a, a a drug addiction diagnosis or a mental illness diagnosis, plus the homelessness, which gives an idea of how difficult it must be to run a building such as this. Yes, it is really difficult and. I'm glad that I was working, that I was watching a building that has been developed by Breaking Ground, which is the not-for-profit um, developer that that created this project, and CUCS, which is the service provider, because they are both incredibly experienced organizations. And in fact, their first collaboration of this sort is an even larger building in Times Square in New York, which opened in 1991. So they have a lot of experience. And I will tell you that is necessary because there really is a danger, and I, I felt it very much at certain points, that a building like this could sort of descend into a, a real sense of not being in control. Um, and it, that never happened. There are moments where it feels like it's happening. But in fact, there is a, an expert hand sort of guiding all of this. So it's, it's residential support services, wraparound services for people. 
Well, it's interesting. There are services there for sure. There's there are med- there's a nurse practitioner, a medical doctor, psychiatrists, um, all are available, but no one in the building is required to partake of any of those services. So you can move into this building and you ha- you, you can never speak to your, your um, case manager. The case manager is gonna try everything under the sun to connect with you but you are not required to do anything of that nature in order to hold on to the apartment. So it is a, it's an interesting situation in which services are available, but not necessarily utilized. Nor is anyone required, as I understand it, to give up the drugs or the alcohol. No, and that is actually a national policy here in the States, which is known as housing first. And it may seem counterintuitive. And I have to say, honestly, even though I've written about homelessness before in 2002, which was before Housing First became national policy, I actually didn't know (laughs) that you could get permanent housing without even agreeing to take medication or go into drug treatment. But but in fact, research has shown that there is a much greater likelihood of said person remaining housed and being able to achieve housing in the first place if you don't require that kind of um, treatment. And in fact, the person is also more likely to ultimately get the required or the, the, the ideal treatments once housed than while living on the street. It's hard to really get anything done while you're living on the street. You know, I mean, in a way, it's no surprise. People are robbed repeatedly. No one has any ID. It's very hard to just do anything. It's a very inefficient way to live. So it makes sense when you think about it, that if someone wants to get drug treatment, they're going to have a far better chance of managing that because it's a bureaucracy like everything else while housed than while sleeping on the sidewalk. You... um. You have some very interesting examples in your article that you've written about this in The New Yorker. Um, very nuanced descriptions of people's difficult lives. Can you can you pick one for me and talk me through it? Because it gives people an idea of the complexities of this. Sure. I mean, there's a guy that I'm, I feel very um, kind of that I think is a very positive story whose name is Speedy. That's his nickname. And what's interesting about him is that he's younger than the average tenant in this building. I think the average is, or at least what I witnessed, a lot of people in their 50s and even 60s, so really middle-aged people, um, who have often really been through so much by that time that there is just trauma upon trauma upon trauma that they're trying to navigate. Speedy has been homeless since he was 23, Um, It began with an eviction, which is often the case. His grandmother's house um, was foreclosed upon, and then he and his mother moved into an apartment. They have a difficult relationship that became violent. And Speedy has serious mental health diagnoses that he's very open about. He has bipolar disorder um, and also PTSD. And so he started, he left his mother's apartment and began living on the roofs of... um, of city housing developments and in the street. And he basically for about seven years cycled in and out of mental hospitals, jail, um, living on the street, shelters. And this is a really common story. And by the way, 
unbelievably expensive to the taxpayer. And then he ended up qualifying for 90 Sands and moving in. And it was not easy at first. You know, he has a he has a very he has a trouble controlling his temper. He was carrying a taser, which is a sort of a stun gun. You're not allowed to have weapons in the building. And he he chafed against the security, which is, of course, an essential part of the building. There are security guards at the door. He ended up flashing his taser at them, so basically threatening them. And that was really an infraction. And he got a serious talk. And he ended up throwing the taser into the river. And it was really a turning point for him. Like, he he basically realized, if I threaten and make trouble here, I'm going to end up back on the street. So the bottom line is, he really settled down. He's living in a much more stable way. He just signed a new two-year lease. And what's so marvelous about it is that he's young enough that this cycling in and out of all of these difficult situations, it's been a long time, seven years, but it's not 30 years (laughs) because I've talked to people like that too. So it's just thrilling to see he has goals. He wants to complete high school and, and get higher education. And it really feels doable because he's only, he's just turned 31. So that, that was a really happy story. There were some stories that were not so happy. Um, you know, one person we were trying to reach for fact checking for the article, it turned out had passed away in his apartment. Um, you know, this, this stuff happens in the building. It's, it's very, these are people who not even putting aside addiction, which of course, I mean, in this country, we have a horrible opioid epidemic that I'm sure you know of. And the opioids are ever more dangerous, full of toxic poisons that are just, you know, kill people left and right. Um, so, you know, so so that is a huge issue and, and people were dying of that. But also living outdoors for long periods is so stressful to the body. There's so little medical care that people also move into the building again in this sort of middle age with cancer all kinds of illnesses that they didn't even necessarily know about and have a way of kind of roaring to the forefront when they exit survival mode and are now living more stably. So it's it's pretty tragic, actually. You see people passing away just at the moment that they've finally found a more stable living situation. It's a roller coaster ride, your article, because indeed there are other people and they take a step and they're getting on and they seem to be going well and then it all blows up and there's one person who just Aisha, yeah she's you know she's poised to have a photograph taken for your article and she just can, disappears and then you found out that, that 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 very day before that photograph was due to be taken she died i i'm assuming of an overdose um yeah that was an overdose too just kind of shockingly heartbreaking you need nerves of steel and bottomless empathy to work with these people. Would that be fair to say? Yes. And and you need an ability to not to, to withstand these blows, which I found really hard. Yeah. I mean, I felt when my subjects, you know, didn't do I had a subject who relapsed back into heroin. That's in the story, too. I felt like I was going to throw up in her apartment when I figured when I learned this. I, I I just was so devastated, and of course I had to hide it because I'm not her mother. I mean, yeah. and when Aisha, when I found out, I was the one who discovered that Aisha had died, and I was devastated. And 
you know, to do this work, you have to be able to come back from that and just, you know, there's a, a quote at the end from the woman who um, handles all of the services at 90 Sands. And I thought there's just a phrase from it that I find myself really thinking about. And she says, sometimes the, sometimes the wins are really small and you have to grab those small wins and feel good about those because it's, it is so difficult to, to coax people and, and, and draw people back into mainstream life when they've been marginalized and 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 have experienced such devastating things for so long. It's just really hard to do it. In a fairy tale, in a novel, not one of your novels, they would they would move in, they would think it was heaven, they would, you know, they would blossom, their lives would change and everybody would live happily ever after. And it's just not like that. It's not. I mean, there are some really good stories, I have to say. And, yes. and also, there are people who are quietly going about their lives who, in a way, because their stories were more stable from the beginning, I ended up not writing about them so much. They were, you know, there's, for example, there's a woman who um, I mentioned very briefly who uh, was actually doing graduate work in literature at Columbia University when she had a psychotic break. She's turned out to have a diagnosis of schizophrenia. She lost her student housing. She ended up on the street. She was in shelters for three years or so, but she finally got well medicated and she's working full time. So it's, you know, people really do transition out of this marginal state. Interestingly, she also is quite young. So it, it, there are, there are definitely good stories, um, and I think that the the less time someone has spent, you know, at the mercy of all of these systems, not to mention the elements, um, often disconnected from from friends and family, the less time people have spent in that state, I think the easier it is to come back. I'm talking to novelist and journalist Jennifer Egan. Um, you referred a little earlier to the expense of of homeless people because they suffer so much illness, mental illness, physical illness, need so much care. The figures you cite are shocking. You said that it costs $70,000 US for a homeless person, but in the housing model, it costs about half as much. Is that correct? Yes, it's 70000 for a, um, a, per, a, a seriously mentally ill homeless person to live on the street mm -hmm. because they are cycling in and out of psychiatric hospitals. Um, the physical illnesses that beset people when they are living outdoors end up being so serious. So, for example, there's a guy that I write about very briefly, and I don't get into this, but because of his heroin use, he ended up with a flesh-eating disease. He was in an inpatient in a New York hospital for 50 months. Okay. Think about how much that costs. Aisha, the one I adored so much who died, had a serious heart problem. And she told me she had a heart monitoring vest that she was given to wear that cost about $40,000. And she, it was stolen from her in a shelter. So, I mean, the, the amount of money that is hemorrhaged just in terms of hospitals and healthcare Aisha repeatedly, people would call ambulances and send her to the hospital again and again and again. So these costs really do mount. 
And I think there's no, I, I, we've known for a long time now, even back when I wrote about homelessness the first time in 2002, the data had already come to light that showed unequivocally that it was a better, it was a much less expensive option to house people than to let them be unhoused. You know, the, the ideal would be to stop people being homeless in the first place. But is that a bridge too far? Is that unimaginable? It's only unimaginable in a country where we can't even keep our government open for another two days, in another two days, possibly. I mean, it's the problem is, although the numbers are, are so stark, as you say, that it's like, why on earth are we, are we letting it play out this way? The problem is that the income streams, this expenditures are very piecemeal. So no one is taking ownership of this and saying, I, you know, the, I, the, the government of America, am going to sanction spending an enormous amount of money on housing, for example. It's a way of kicking the can down the road and saying, well, we can't get agreement around this, so we'll just try to, you know, help the homeless, we'll try to give them better shelters. And all of that is phenomenally expensive, but it's not actually getting at the problem. You are 100% right that prevention is the absolute best. And not only is it more humane for everyone, because if you go to places like San Francisco, people who are not homeless are also made miserable by the homeless situation. And the homeless people themselves are obviously miserable. Um, so it, it, it just, it makes sense on, on every level. <laughs> New York is the only U.S. city that guarantees shelter to all homeless people. Does that attract people to New York if they are homeless? I don't think it does, because interestingly, um, research has shown that people don't really move to be homeless somewhere. They tend to move for opportunity and then sometimes the opportunity doesn't work out. And I actually have a guy like that in my story who moved here. He's a, you know, he's a uh, license to drive very big trucks. He moved to New York because of the higher minimum wage, but he ended up homeless really because of his alcoholism, which he now has solved, which is pretty great. Um, so people move for opportunities and become homeless. The one exception to that is that we now, you may know in New York have a a really extreme problem with asylum seekers coming here. And it started with border red state governors sending people here to show New Yorkers how what it's like to have immigrants arriving in large numbers. And then it seems that, you know, the, the guarantee of shelter and the, the good services that we have here is a very liberal place may have actually attracted a lot more migrants and asylum seekers than would otherwise have come. But that's not really what I mean, what, what we have traditionally meant when we talk about people who are homeless. Because people who are homeless usually means people who had homes and lost them for whatever reason. These are people who are moving from another place. So that's something a little bit different. Um, it, why do you care? I mean, a lot of people don't, these people, you know, they're junkies and they're drunks and they're you know, they're, they're mentally ill, they're often psychotic, bipolar, whatever. They're hard. A lot of people say, too hard. Uh, we'd rather concentrate on small furry animals and children. Why do you care? 
Well, I think I care for many reasons. Um, but one personal reason is that my brother was schizophrenic um, and he committed suicide in 2016 after a very hard life um, in his late 40s. He was actively psychotic all the time because if he, the, the only way to, to tamp down his psychosis was to give him so much medicine that he was essentially catatonic. So he just lived with psychosis. And it was a hellish existence. And it was honestly hard to keep him housed, even with a loving family, trying everything we could think of to help him and resources. So I have often thought, and I talk about this with my mother, that you know he would absolutely have been homeless and practically was anyway at various points. So I feel tremendous sympathy for the, and he was also, by the way, an alcoholic because People with serious mental illnesses often try to self-medicate through using drugs and alcohol. So even separating those two kinds of issues is a little bit artificial. Um, so I look at these people and I think these are people like my brother. And I adored him. And he was incredibly smart and sparkling and through a, through a, a piece of bad genetic luck. He had a, a brutal life and I've had a great life. So I feel like I am very drawn to this population. I guess that's all I can really tell you. If I see someone lying in the street, I think that was a baby once. Someone had that baby and held that baby. And now this is the state this person is in. And, and feeling alien, there are times where people are alienating. They're, they're you know, they're, they can be aggressive. They can be um you know seem threatening and but i feel like that's not a reason to turn away i just you know this is what i think it is to be a human being is to try to look out for each other and help could anything ha have saved your brother do you think i think i think if he could have actually stopped drinking and and if it had just been the schizophrenia in the moments when he was able to do that for short periods, he it really was better. And I also think the longer he was psychotic, the harder it was to um, the harder it was for his brain to to sort of regulate out of that state. I don't know what what would have saved him. I do think if he had been born now or more recently, the drugs are a lot better. Um, and one actually fantastic thing is we do have these long, um, long acting injectable antipsychotics, not the medicine he was on is not in that category, but he might not have needed to be on such a, a heavy duty one if, if his psychosis could have been controlled at an earlier point. The woman I mentioned earlier who had the psychotic break while she was at Columbia, the long acting injectables were what really saved her because she was able to stabilize enough to see that she had been crazy. <laughs> and the problem is that with psychosis is that a, the person experiencing psychosis is reacting very reasonably to things that we, the rest of us can't see and hear. They need to get that distance from that, um, that stimulus in order to see it more clearly. So I think, I do think there's more hope for people like my brother now than there was when he was born in the very late 60s. A lot of people attribute um, the homelessness 
not only in America, to the wave of deinstitutionalization, the closing down of often really, really unpleasant institutions for the mentally ill, um, but not giving enough support when people were deinstitutionalized. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. I mean, that seems to be verifiable fact. I mean, there were there were two parts to the there were supposed to be two parts to the deinstitutionalization. One was releasing everyone from the hospitals where many of them had been stuffed by relatives who didn't want them around. I mean, as you say, they were inhumane and really pretty indefensible. Um, but the, the second half of that equation was supposed to be community care. That was the part that never really happened. So you have people unmedicated and they, they're not stable. <laughs> I mean, the community care is essential. And that is to some degree what a place like 90 Sands is providing mm. or at least providing case management so that if someone is willing to to be cared for, to to contend with their diagnosis and diagnosis in one way or another, either on site or in the larger uh, medical system, they can be directed and 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 managed to some degree. Are you going to carry on your association with Ninety Sounds? You've made some friends there. I'll tell you right now. I feel like I'm there more than I'm than I'm <laughs> home. I feel pretty deeply involved. Also, as a funny aside, I have a friend who lives in one of the affordable units. I ran into him on the elevator. So I know people on both sides of, of the uh, of the equation in 90 Sands. Um, yeah, I feel very attached to the people there and um and very eager to see what what happens to them those and, people and living even, those people living in the affordable units 40 percent of the units are affordable that is you know people on low incomes but you know they don't have to be drug addicts or alcoholics or homeless to get in there um this is what would we would call it pepper potting you know mixing mixing people up does that work you know, it's a great question. I mean, I think that it's certainly what would really not work is having the entire building be supportive housing, because I think it would feel very institutional. And I know my brother, for example, loathed being around people that were much like him, frankly. He saw himself as different. And I find that pretty universally with everyone in the building. They feel like everyone else is the problem. So I, I think ideally it would be 60% affordable and 40% supportive so that the majority would be a little more mainstream folks and I and with, with, with fewer issues. And I think the, the vibe would be a little bit more calm, mm -hmm. but I think financially that doesn't work. So there are financial constraints here that the developer is dealing with. This formula seems to be the prevailing one at the moment, the 60-40, and in fact, I think is required in order to get the necessary government funding. But if I if I could do it my way, I would try flipping that ratio, if I could do anything, and see how that works. I mean, this is an intense experience for you, and you write about it incredibly movingly. Does it does it inform your fiction? You know, fiction and journalism have been intertwined for me for a really long time. Um, I first came to journalism 
because I actually, uh, I was writing a book called Look at Me, which was about fashion models in New York. And I couldn't, I needed, I needed some sources to kind of help me understand the world of high fashion in New York. Couldn't get anyone to talk to me. <laughs> they just didn't care. So I took on the assignment because I figured if I called these agencies and said I was from the New York Times, I would maybe not get put on hold endlessly and actually be able to talk to someone. So it, the two have always been connected. And I I are braided together in some very deep way, even though the writing of the two is extremely different. And I will say this, you know, as I was working on this story, I found myself for the first time, you know, I recently published a book called The Candy House, which is a kind of sibling novel to A Visit from the Goon Squad, which I published in 2010. And I've been asked repeatedly, do you think you'll return to the world of these books? And I really thought, I don't know how I would do it. I just feel a blank. But as I was working on this story, I started thinking, I think I know how to do it. I think I know how to approach this world for the third time. So on some deep kind of cellular level, some creative level that I can't even really see clearly the the nonfiction is profoundly generative for the fiction and just one more thing to add you know i am not an auto fictionalist i do not i'm not interested in writing about people like me i'm interested in the discovery of lives far from my own so for me the the opportunity to go out into the world and learn about lives that are so different from mine is an absolute gift of material are these homeless people so different from you? Because as as the century progresses, we all feel more precarious in many ways. I tend to think people are very much the same and always have been. It's our circumstances that, that separate us. And those circumstances are hugely um, <laughs> variable. I mean, you know, I, I think I say at one point in the article, you know, when Aisha... When Aisha died, what I thought was she would have been a better writer than I am. I mean, she was such a great talker. She pulled together her, just her way of thinking was so intelligent and pulled together so many different vernaculars and so much humor. She was such a joy to listen to. And I thought it's just grotesque that we've lost her. And who knows what she might have done? Um, I, I, I don't feel that, that what's different about these lives from mine is 100% circumstantial. That's Jennifer Egan. Uh, somebody texted to say, this is the exact same as Home Ground in Auckland, run by Auckland City Mission. Wonderful. Yes, quite right. This approach, housing first, is the ethos of Auckland City Mission's Home Ground project. Um, in it's in many parts of the world now, but it originated in its full practice, as Jennifer Egan said, in North America in the 1990s. Um, here in New Zealand, we generally have the emergency shelter transitional housing system, which is kind of the opposite to Housing First. 